Let's now in this moment prepare our hearts to be addressed not by a mere man, but by God himself. This is God's word. Luke chapter 22, we pick things up in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Verse 26, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you Become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. A kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. And write its eternal truth upon our hearts. As this passage begins, we find the disciples having an argument, a dispute, a disagreement. The subject of their disagreement who among them was the greatest? At a first reading, the disciples' argument here in Luke 22 can seem juvenile, immature. And honestly, somewhat shocking. Grown adults, personally discipled by the Lord Jesus, arguing about who is the greatest. And doing so on the very evening of the day before the Lord Jesus was to be crucified. When in fact, they all, not one exception, they all would abandon him. It is also surprising in that this was not a new argument. So one might think that by this point in the discipleship process, the twelve would have put this one to rest. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, we read an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. In Mark 9, Mark tells us that Jesus asked the disciples what they had just been talking about as they walked along the road. And in response, Mark says, they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. In another instance, Mark 10, James and John asked Jesus to let them sit in the places of greatest prominence, greatest glory, greatest honor in Jesus' future kingdom. They asked if they could sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left. Scholar Philip Riken quips, 
we get the definite impression that this was a common topic of conversation. Some people like to talk about the weather or sports or politics. The disciples like to talk about which one of them was the greatest. So, this was not a new argument. And Jesus had already in the past corrected the pride which motivated this disagreement in the first place. Oh, may we see ourselves this morning (laughs) in the disciples who at times could be a little slow on the uptake, who were slow learners. What a patient, kind Savior we have. Sometimes the lessons he teaches the original disciples, as well as all of us, can take a very long time for us to get. Uh, Thankfully, our Lord, he lovingly and graciously, graciously perseveres with his disciples and us. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit keeps working with us, sanctifying us, making more, making us more like Christ. What a kind Savior he is. While this argument that the disciples had amongst themselves may at first seem immature to us, the reality is the self-concern, the pride, the ambition that motivated this ongoing quarrel is something that all people, all people, to one degree or another, struggle with on this side of heaven. And just as the disciples we see in this passage were evidently quite blind to their pride, we also myself included, can be brought blind to our pride as well. Reflecting on this passage, 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle writes as follows. The sin before us is a very old one. Ambition, self-esteem, and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts, And often, listen, in the hearts where they are least suspected. Thousands fancy that they are humble, who cannot bear to see an equal more honored and favored than themselves. I agree with Ryle. Thousands fancy that they are humble. And if you just think of it, who of us here in this room doesn't want to think of ourselves as humble. Who of us would like to actually think of ourselves as proud? But the problem is our pride is easily exposed. Our pride is easily exposed when someone else is promoted, someone else is honored, someone else is blessed or advanced in some way. And we think, what exactly is going on here? We have all kinds of thoughts going through our minds at times like that. We think, I should have gotten the promotion. I should have been the one honored. I should have been the one thanked. Or we might think, why does everything seem to go right for that person over there? Why does, why does everyone like them? Why don't they seem to have the kind of struggles that I do? Haven't I worked harder than they? Haven't I sacrificed more? Haven't I been just as godly? 
You might look at someone else and say, hey, that person, <laughs> that person is mean. Right? Why are they so blessed and not me? What's the problem here? Can you relate to thoughts like that? I know I can. Well, we don't, we don't often say these things out loud. So we won't go as, as far as disciples did. So we might not say these things out loud, but most of us would have to admit these kinds of thoughts, at least on occasion, go through our minds. So I ask you, are we really that much better than the disciples in our passage? As Ryle insightfully pointed out, the sin before us is a very old one. Ambition, self-esteem, and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts. And often in the hearts where they are least suspected. So, no one here in this room, in fact, no human being can say, can say you know what, I'm above the sin of pride. No one can rightly say, this sin may be something someone else has to deal with. But me? No, I'm humble. No one can truly say when they read this text and see the disciples' poor example of pride and say, you know what, Jesus' words here don't apply. All that to say, may God help each and every one of us to take this word deeply to heart this morning. May these words of our Savior inspire us and where necessary, convict us as well. In this passage, Jesus redefines great, greatness for his disciples and for all Christians and invites us to pursue greatness as he, not the world, defines it. So following the basic outline of the text, I've got three points. First, what true greatness is not. Second, what true greatness is. And finally, third point, the reward true greatness brings. So point number one, what true greatness is not. In these verses, it is clear that the disciples had a very real misconception regarding the nature of greatness in the kingdom of God. Their understanding of greatness was, to put it bluntly, worldly. That is, their perspective on this topic was not all that different from the world around them. So part of what Jesus was trying to do in this passage was to adjust their perspective. He was trying to help them to see that true greatness in God's eyes is nothing like greatness in the world's eyes. So we read verse 25, and he said to them, please look there, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Verse 26, but not so with you. In the New Testament, when reference is made to the Gentiles, it usually is meant in the same sense as we today use the phrase, the world. As Christians, we sometimes say that is the way of the world, to refer to this or that behavior or attitude that is ungodly and not in keeping with the way of following Christ. Likewise, the people of Israel would often refer to attitudes and behavior that were contrary to the law of God 
as that is the way of the Gentiles. In other words, that is, that is the way of those who don't know God. That is the way of those who don't know His laws. That is the way of those who don't know the ways of Yahweh. And that is precisely what Jesus was doing in verse 25. He was saying to His disciples, Look, you say you want to be great. You're arguing about it here. But when you're thinking of greatness, you're thinking of it, disciples, on all the wrong terms. You are thinking of greatness in the same way as the Gentiles, in the same way as the world. He then says essentially, now let's just think about that. You just picture Jesus looking at their eyes. And he basically says, all right, disciples, let's just think about this together for a minute. Those who are great in the eyes of the Gentiles are the kings. And how do those great kings act? How do those great ones behave? How do those great leaders relate to the people under them that they are supposedly there to care for and to serve? Well, Jesus says, verse 25, they exercise lordship over them. They exercise lordship over the, over the people. The New American Standard Bible translates verse 25 as the kings of the Gentiles domineer over them. The NIV says the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. The word in the original language translated lorded over is the same word that the Apostle Peter uses when he exhorts pastors to not domineer over their flocks. So what does it mean? What does it mean to lord it over? Well, to lord it over means quite simply to use authority selfishly. It means to use authority to use other people to advance one's own self-serving ends. And the Gentile kings were just like that, Jesus said. Yet Jesus also said with no small bit of irony, these leaders, these kings were called benefactors. In the time in which the New Testament was written, it was not uncommon for Gentile leaders to ascribe to themselves the name the title of benefactor. It is known that Syrian leaders, Egyptian leaders, and Roman leaders, these Gentile leaders and kings, they all did this. They would ascribe to themselves that title, benefactor. In fact, certain monuments dedicated to some of those leaders at that time, on those monuments was found the Greek word for benefactor. So this is how these Gentile kings Wanted to be known. A benefactor, as you know, is someone who exists, what? To benefit and serve others. The irony is, the Gentile kings were anything but true benefactors. Yes, they had power. Yes, they had fame. Yes, they had notoriety. But one thing is for sure. They weren't about benefiting anyone but themselves. They lorded it over the people, Jesus said. That is, they abused their power for the benefit of themselves at the expense of the people. And here in our passage, Jesus, Jesus wanted to make it abundantly clear to his disciples 
to Christian leaders, and indeed to all Christians, that true greatness in Christ's kingdom has nothing to do with any of that. True greatness is not, Jesus says, about having a position of prominence, prestige, and power. And it is certainly not about leveraging that power for one's own selfish, personal gain. As I think about this, there are many important lessons that can be gleaned from Jesus' words here. One of them is this. The church of Jesus Christ is absolutely not the place for seeking after or pursuing worldly greatness. And by that I mean the church is not the place for anyone. It is not the place for any pastor or any leader or any member to seek to make a name for themselves. The church of Jesus Christ is not about self-promotion, self-exaltation, or self-glorification. The church is not about position. It's not about prominence. And it's not about popularity. The church is not about being celebrated. It's not about being honored. It's not about being acclaimed. No, the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is about the glory of another. The church of Jesus Christ is about the glory of Christ who gave his life for us. I want to add something else here. As I mentioned, the Gentile kings viewed others simply as a means to meet their own personal wants, desires, and needs. They weren't at all about benefiting others. They were about benefiting themselves. But as Jesus makes clear, that's not true greatness. And as I think about this, just pause and think about this with me for a couple minutes. As I think about this, this has massive implications. Massive implications for how we view all our relationships. Relationships in the family, relationships in the church. Just consider, God's blessed me with a great, great wife and kids. Just think about this. To the degree that I view Phibia and the kids and then all of you, my church family, to the, view, to the degree I view all of you selfishly and as existing to advance my own personal agenda and purposes, to that same degree I'm operating from a worldly mindset and a faulty definition of greatness. Because true greatness is not about everyone around me serving me. It's not what it's about. Jesus is making it clear. It's not about everyone around me making much of me. Most of you know. Father of five kids. And there is nothing that I love more than to be with my wife and kids. But just consider this. What if I repeatedly were to come home from work every day and spend all evening, every evening, on the ham radio, which is a hobby of mine. It's contacting people all over the world with Morse code. And yes, I do know that I'm a nerd. But just consider, if I did that every night just because I needed to relax, 
and because I've had a long day and I need time to myself. Well, if I did that, first off, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Phibia wouldn't be very happy with me. I might need to make myself comfortable sleeping on the couch for a while. Not only that, I would be operating out of a very worldly mindset that says functionally this family, this home exists primarily as a haven to serve me, (laughs) to serve my own comfort, my own relaxation, my own ease. Which, listen, it's totally contrary to Jesus' definition, our Savior's definition of true greatness. Similarly in the church. If I ever get to the place where I evaluate my relationships, my friendships in the church purely on the basis of what am I getting out of it? Or what benefit is this to me? Or what is in it for me? Well then, how is that mindset any different from the world's self-centered, self-serving approach to relationships? Now of course in the church we do need to benefit from others in relationships. I think you get what I'm saying here. If someone's fundamental orientation to church and to people in the church is what am I getting and not how can I, how can I serve, well then a biblical perspective on greatness is likely lacking. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. In all of life, may God help us, dear church, to not embrace a worldly definition of greatness but instead God's definition. Which brings us to our second point, what true greatness is. Verse 25 again. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Which brings us to verse 26. Here comes Jesus' definition. We've seen the worldly definition of greatness. Here comes Jesus' definition. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you, Jesus says, as the one who serves. So Jesus told his disciples in verse 25 that they were not to pursue greatness as defined by the Gentiles' definition, the world's definition of greatness. Instead, verse 26, they were to pursue greatness in the way he prescribed, in the way he says to pursue greatness. The vast majority of us here in this room, by God's grace, we are believers. We are those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the mercy of God, isn't it? We have trusted in him to forgive us of our sins. By the mercy of God, we've repented of our sins. And consequently, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we have new desires, desires that are of the Lord, desires that God himself has given us. And what's our deepest desire? Our deepest desire is to follow Christ. To express our love to Him, in part, by obeying Him. If you love me, what? You say it out loud. Obey my commands. So I know, when I look out at this room, I'm looking at people 
who love Jesus and your deepest desire is to obey. It's to serve your master. We might struggle, struggle. We might stumble, we might falter, but the truth is we want to please our Savior. So when he says, don't try to be great in this way, okay, but be great in this way, what I'm assuming about you, and I hope is true of me, is our desires to pay attention. Our desires to heed his word. Our desire is to do what our master tells us to do. So what does it in fact look like to pursue greatness in the way that our master Jesus has called us to? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 26. We don't have to go any further than this. (laughs) Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and as the leader, as the one who serves. Here Jesus uses the word youngest, um, not in any sort of derogatory manner, but rather to point out the simple fact that those who are the youngest in age are those with the least ability to exercise authority and rule and power over other people. It is by now folklore in the Patton family that my uncle, once upon a time, when he was a very little boy, he became very, very angry and livid at my grandfather when He did not give him the toy that he wanted. And standing there with his plastic toy sword, my then toddler uncle looked his dad and my grandfather in the eye with all seriousness and said, if you don't give me that toy, I'm going to cut your head off with a sword." A sword. This is laughable for two reasons. Number one, my grandfather wasn't exactly scared of his little boy's plastic sword. And number two, his son, my uncle, had no... He's a little kid, right? He had no authority over him. Little children have absolutely no authority over others. And here Jesus tells his disciples and all Christians that true greatness involves adopting a heart posture of that of a child. Maybe not the heart posture of my uncle in that moment who threatened to cut my grandfather's head off with his toy sword. But you get what I'm saying. True greatness, Jesus is saying, involves adopting the mindset of a child who doesn't strut around with some kind of authority complex trying to impose his will on other people. True greatness, Jesus is saying, involves adopting the humble attitude of a child who himself is under authority. So, as Christians, point of application, in our relationships with one another, we do well to remember that we are all but children. Children who are under the authority of another. Children who are under the authority of their Heavenly Father. We do well to remember That is, children, we are not ultimately in charge. Our Heavenly Father is in charge. And we therefore have no right to impose our will. We have no right to impose our will on God's other kids and become irritated and angry when they don't behave in ways that we don't like or that we don't prefer. We do well to remember that as children, we do the bidding of our Heavenly Father who is who is in heaven and not our own. So, true greatness, it involves adopting the humble heart posture of a little child. And also, Jesus says, the attitude and mindset of a servant. Jesus said, 
Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader, end of verse 26, as one who, what? Serves. Verse 27, for who is greater? One who reclines at table, note the next phrase, or one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Here we see that all who desire, all who desire to be truly great in God's eyes, make it their aim to serve others. In this, Jesus is our example. That very day, you may recall, our Lord modeled this kind of servant leadership as John records, by an act of menial service, he washed his disciples' feet. Even more so, Jesus modeled the humble servant attitude that he called his disciples to, and us as well, the very next day. On Good Friday, by going to the cross and dying on the cross in our place for our sins, Jesus came not to be served. Mark says. Actually, Jesus says in Mark, I came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm so thankful. And I know you are too. That our Lord and Savior did not embrace the world's definition of greatness. Instead, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians 2. And in that same chapter, Paul says that Christ's mindset that led him to the cross should characterize all believers as well. Have this mind among you, he says. So what does this mean practically? Well, among other things, it means our relationships with one another in the home and in the church ought to be shaped, above all, by the cross. It means we should live and breathe mindset in the home, in the community, in the church of how can I serve? How can I sacrifice? How can I humble myself? How can I lay my life down? Speaking personally for me, the call, it's a reference to my wife. How can I love her? How can I serve her? Means I actually, this means I actually stop thinking about myself long enough to consider what does it look like in real time, right now, in this moment, for me to sacrifice for her and to think, of, think that way all the time. And with my kids, it's, how can I serve? How can I vest? This is the mindset Jesus calls us to. How can I make a difference? In the church, with all of you, my mindset ought to be, who is hurting here? Who's grieving? Who's in pain? Who's in need? Who's being sorely tempted? And how can I help? And brothers and sisters, because I know you, I trust you know, those aren't questions just for a pastor. Those are questions for all Christians. And I would suggest that each one of us, if we just 
Lift our hands to God and pray the prayer. Holy Spirit, give me eyes to see. Help me to see needs. Help me to see who you would have me to serve, to encourage, to help. If we pray that prayer, I promise you, the Lord will show you. And you will be amazed. You will be stunned. As the Lord opens your eyes to see the needs of other people in our church and outside of our church. And as you step forward and you seek to serve and humble yourself and pursue true greatness, how can I help? What can I do? You'll be stunned how the Lord uses you for his glory to build people up, other people up, to encourage them, to strengthen them. Also, we want to serve this way towards those who don't know the Lord, that they might come to know Jesus and experience the grace we have. Many of you are already doing this all the time. This room is filled with people who are truly great in God's eyes. So please, church, keep going. COVID. Some of you just woke up. I'm not going to go far with this. And I'm not addressing any person or group in particular. So if I accidentally make eye contact with you, please don't think I'm speaking directly to you. But I've got just one question that the Holy Spirit, I feel, laid on my heart for your prayerful consideration. Would those in our church, would those in your care group who think very differently than you on all matters, COVID and masks, would they be more aware of your disagreement or of your humble desire to love and to serve them? I'm just going to say it again. With those in our church, perhaps those in your care group, who think very differently than you on all matters, COVID and Max, be more aware of your disagreement or of your humble desire, I know it's, it's there, to love and to serve them. From their perspective, meaning the perspective of those who have the opposite viewpoint as you, from their perspective, what do you think they would be more aware of? your disagreement, or your love. If they are potentially more aware of your disagreement than your love, I might suggest, this is just a suggestion, please consider going out of your way sometime soon, perhaps even today, to communicate in some way, shape, or form your love. And then seek in some way to serve them and to express the care that I know is in your hearts. As you know, it's been a very difficult, Michael referenced this during worship, it's been a very difficult 13 months for all of us. And I do feel it's important to acknowledge that there are those in our midst who are at this moment in this room hurting. They're hurting. People in our church hurting in varying degrees for various reasons related to the events of the past 13 months. For Jeremy and I, as your friends and pastors, this is painfully hard for us to watch. 
Yet Jeremy and I do believe God by his Holy Spirit wants to bring healing. We do believe he wants to bring encouragement and comfort. How is that going to happen? As we lean towards one another in biblical, Christ-like love. And to be clear, um, we don't think this has to be hard, but we do think this kind of love requires a firm commitment and dogged determination on the part of us all to pursue true greatness in our relationships and to move towards one another in Christ-like humility. Um, We've seen, I love how our church has done this in many ways and believe the Lord wants to continue to help us. Because this is the way of the gospel. This is the way of the cross. And this is the way of true greatness. And our Lord is inviting us to pursue that. So may God help us fill us with his spirit in the days ahead. All right, final point. This one's shorter than the other two. The reward true greatness brings. Verse 28, Jesus says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Peering into the future on the night when he would be crucified, Jesus saw the faithfulness. He saw the sacrifice that would be required of the disciples. And by reminding them of how they had been faithful thus far to him in his ministry, he was encouraging them to be faithful in the future as well. And as a reward for their faithfulness, in Jesus' heavenly kingdom, Jesus promised that the disciples would eat at his table and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, presumably because of their rejection of Christ. What this is, brothers and sisters, is nothing less than a promise of future honor for the disciples. As they walk the path of true greatness that Jesus had just called them to, as they are faithful to Christ, Jesus promises that God will reward them, as he will reward anyone who walks that same path. I would like to to ask the band to join me on the stage. Brothers and sisters, the path of Jesus in going to the cross to die for our sins and the path of the, that the disciples walked after him in laying their lives down for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the gospel is the same path that God has called each and every one of us to walk in. He has called us here, all of us. Jesus himself has called us to walk on the path of true greatness, of true servanthood, of taking up our crosses daily to follow him, and of humbly loving and serving those around us that he's placed us in relationships. And I just want to conclude by saying this. I am really thankful to be walking this road with all of you. I do believe the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, is doing something really wonderful among us. Through these sermons in Luke and through a providentially difficult year and a half, I think the Lord is teaching each one of us. I I know I can say he's teaching me. He's teaching us what it means truly more and more to be his disciple, to follow him. And what a joy it is to do this together. I look forward 
on that final day, just to seeing how God will reward so many of you for the many sacrifices you have made, the many ways you have shown sacrificial, humble love to one another over the years and the way you will love one another in the days ahead. And what a glorious day at the table of the Lamb that's going to be. All because of Jesus. All because he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped at. He humbled himself for us. He is the one who is truly great. Let's now stand together and worship him.